Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast and a very, very special number 48 on the episode list. And I am here with my co-host and friend, Mike Perry. Mike, how are you today for this special, special episode? Just living the dream. Um, you know, not a day goes by where people email me, hey, are you platinum Mike Perry the fighter? And I say, uh, no, I'm not. Um, but I, you know, I appreciate that. But uh, no, we're, we're doing well up here in Boston, man. Um, it's another day in paradise, and uh, I'm excited about today, man. We're uh, I'm pumped about today's podcast. It's going to be a good one. Well, you know, I'm a big baseball guy, and so one of my one of my favorite places in the world is Cooperstown, and so you get to see all the legends and the, those walls kind of just speak to you when you're there. And we don't have a Cooperstown for fitness, but if we did, you'd have a first ballot Hall of Famer in our guest right here, Dr. Kelly Sturet. Uh, he's a I'm going to try to make this as brief as possible. He's a coach, physical therapist, author, speaker, uh, along with his wife, Juliet, uh, who's also brilliant. They founded the Ready State. It started back, and I started following his work way back when it was the Mobility Wad uh, many years ago. Um, and it's just kind of a way of, of, of performance and, and therapy and self-care that kind of just really took off. And his clients include everything from NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, Olympic gold medalist, Tour de France, you name it. Uh, he's a he's an author of some great books, New York Times and Wall Street bestsellers, uh, be, uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard, Ready to Run, Waterman 2.0, Deskbound, and the newest one, which I absolutely love, is Built to Move, The Essential Habits to Help You Move Freely and Live Fully. He's been everywhere. He's been on 60 Minutes, The View, Joe Rogan, CBS. He's been in two of Tim Ferriss's books, uh, Tools of Titans, and we share a common thing. Kelly, we were both in the four-hour body. I was not quite as featured as you were, um, but and you get the notoriety, but but we we hold that in common. Uh, and he also founded, along with, with uh, Juliet, San Francisco CrossFit and, and Stand Up Kids Together, which I would definitely want to talk about as, as we get further on. He also has paddled uh, Whitewater slalom canoe and the u.s canoe and kayak teams and uh led the men's whitewater rafting team to two national titles titles and competed in two world championships and through his kayaking got the coolest story at a party for hey how did you guys meet with him and his wife so <laughs> dr kelly Sturet, we are honored thank you so much that is insufferable i'm sorry everyone the short story is i love to lift weights I love to uh, help athletes go faster. That's what my bio should say. Obsessed with uh, all things, you know, human beings playing and competing. Love it. Love it. Mike, I'm going to let you kick things off before I go total fanboy here on Dr. Sturette. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, Doc, over the years, uh, your work has pretty much sparked this trend of of mobility. Mm -hmm. And Sorry, um, everybody. You know, very... No, no, no. No, it's a good thing. Um, and 
you know, you provided so many individuals with so many different proven strategies to improve their mobility. But before we even talk anymore about that, what is your definition of mobility? And what is the difference between mobility, flexibility, and movement? Oh, my God. Well, so let's let's take the the first thing as we go. I think if I'm an average person, typical person, who is sort of just, you know, not necessarily obsessed the way we're obsessed, mobility is can you move through your environment, accessing your body's native physiology, doing the things you want to do in a pain-free way, right? Can you move through your environment? Can you occupy your role in the family? Can you occupy your role in, in your job? Can you, can you do all of those things in a pain-free way? That I think is a, a fine definition. If we're being really critical, do you have access to your native range of motion? Do you have movement control in those native ranges of motion? So just so everyone understands, when we wrote Becoming a Supple Leopard, really there are two objective measures in Supple Leopard. One is native range. And when I mean native, what I mean is natural range. Every physical therapist, every physician, every chiro all believes that your shoulder should do a certain number of things. Your hip flexes to your chest somewhere between 135 and 140 degrees, one or zero, yes or no. And what we see is we capture like 98, 99% of the population, even more than that, within that 135 to 140 degree window. And so the problem is what we had, we had been really getting good at training and measuring output, but we no one was looking at range of motion. So Supple Leopard is about tools that athletes and coaches can deploy to return people to their native range of motion. And the second objective was, what do you do with that range of motion? And what we experience is that when we give people their native ranges, we see changes in power, we see changes in wattage, changes in output, and that's really the only thing that matters. It's Yeah, yeah, it's nice that you're missing or you have full access to your range. What does that mean? It means I can throw the ball more in more innings with a fresher shoulder and a fresher elbow if I'm a major league pitcher. It means I can perform more work off more often. It means I can reduce session cost from my training sessions. When we look at the word mobility, really, we try to take a systems approach to this. What is the limiting factor to your ability to move? Is it the fact that you have confounding environmental considerations? You don't sleep. You don't eat. You're underfueled, undernourished. You're a stress case. All of those things are going to feed into how well you move through your environment. As you know, I'm a huge great cook, Lee Burton fam. Gray says, your range of motion is a living document that changes every day. And one of the reasons we train is to know how our bodies are working on the day. That's why we do warm-ups to recalibrate, understand what's happening, and to minimize potential training effects. If I just do tons of volume running, lo and behold, I'm going to have changes in my ability to access my range of motion. That is usually managed through, through training and through sort of exposure to the things that my body should be able to do. When we say things like flexibility, oftentimes that describes usually in the popular mind is a the, the characteristics, characteristics of like a muscle. Usually that's what people are saying. They're not talking about joint flexibility. They're not talking about fascial flexibility. They're not talking about how well the nerves run through the nerve tunnels. They're not talking about how people are moving and the skill to be able to stabilize that shoulder. So the, the question is ultimately when we get into what does it mean to be mobile? What we're really asking is what's preventing you from accessing that range, native range of motion? Is it a bony block? Okay. 
Is it that you're stiff? Okay. Is it that your nerves are not running through nerve tunnels? Is it a movement problem? Is it a joint capsule problem? Is there something else going on in your issue that's preventing you from doing that? A mobility strategy that's more complete addresses each one of those characteristics as part of the system's whole so that you can do what? Go do the thing you want to do. Love it. Absolutely love it. So we're going to dig a little I, Wait, wait, did I pass? Is that okay? Is that an okay term? You, I mean, that's it. You're, we're done for the day. You can go home. No, no, you that know. was... Um, no, that was fantastic. And you know what, actually, before we get into the next question, there was something as you were sort of giving us two individual sort of uh, definitions. Uh, the first definition was, you know, to me, it just sounded like your ability to live the life you want to live. That's and the then your simplest. second definition. That's right. Yeah. It, and, and, and the beauty of that is then you went to the more complex answer after. And if we think about it, you know, the, the taking having the ability to move your joints pain-free through a large range of motion, like the, you know, when we talk about mobility in, in the science world, but it's funny because all I was thinking about when you were talking was if you want to have good mobility, literally the ability to do what you want later in life, it starts with the habits of having good mobility and good hygiene and good movement hygiene now. So mobility leads to mobility. And I know it's, I agree a, it's with a different that. definition. And I would say further on that is your ability to express what your body does doesn't have to decay or change or attenuate as you age. It's actually one of the physical characteristics we don't, we shouldn't have to keep our eye on. You should be able to get up and down off the ground until you're 120 years old. Like there's no part of the human physiology that says, oh, you just at age 70, you stop putting your arms over your head. What, what are you talking about? You can't take a full breath. Like, you know, why did, why are doctors giving you that respirometer in the hospital? Cause you're not actually taking a full breath and you're going to get pneumonia. These are native, again, native things. Do we expect elderly? I'm turning 50 this year. Do I expect myself to become stiffer as I age? Yes. Do I expect myself to require a little more warm up to be able to backflip? Probably right. There's some things that I'm going to have to do because my tissues won't necessarily have the same springiness, the same collagen, but we're, we're figuring out that boy, if we start to do things that start to look and smell like yoga, Pilates, sleep, <laughs> eat, you know, eat food, lo and behold, yes, I may see a, a drop in my power and I may not be able to handle the volume that a 20 year old can handle, but there's no reason I shouldn't be able to hold on to my ability to do the splits or wait for it because who cares about the splits? Just do things like squat all the way down with my heels on the ground or use my native ranges because that's the thing is you hit. We haven't, no one has come to value or put position into the language of strength conditioning or into the language of movement. It's always about outputs. The FMS is 1996 and people are quick to shit on the FMS. They love to just poo poo on it. And I'm like, hey, can I see your cell phone from 1996, please? Can I see what shoes and what jeans you're wearing from 1996? That was so far ahead to say, let's come up with functional minimums so that we can understand what inputs and outputs are. You know, the FMS in 1996, the first time people ever overhead squatted in their lives, unless you were an Olympic lifter or a track athlete. Now, everyone overhead squats. But back then, no one was doing it. So suddenly, you can see that the FMS was this wonderful screen for us to be able to ask, ask the question, why can't you get into these fundamental shapes? And now we're starting. I mean, I don't think anyone has really started to make the case that range of motion matters, but we're starting to get to people thinking about position as a requisite of performance. 
Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, we're going to go back and talk a little bit more specifically on um, sort of the sub factors uh, within the umbrella of mobility. So how do we how do we distinguish the difference between soft tissue quality, tissue extensibility, uh, joint mobility, joint mobility mm. dysfunction, motor control to better understand the root cause of some of these limitations? It's a really good question. And the first order of magnitude here is I don't use a just so we can get clear. I don't use a lot of corrective exercises. It's just, it's not my jam. And it's because I have so many other tools I can regress and progress. So, and it's not that corrective exercises are bad. I just don't use a lot of them. What we, what we can think about is, is we're trying to teach people skills. We're trying to protect them during an injury or, or after surgery, for example, we always have just only a couple options and everything can be put through this framework. I'm lifting like something kind of a classic strength and conditioning model, front squat. And I can do that quickly and I can do it grinding and heavy, but it's still the front squat, still relatively low power. Sorry, everyone, squatting is a low power exercise. I hate to tell you that, but it is. Then we can start adding speed to that and accelerate and add complexity. And then it's a power clean to a front squat and right, yada, yada, yada. But then we can just take that front squat and start to slow it down or pause it. And everything in training is either in complexity is either slowing down or pausing. Those are isometrics and tempo work. And so one of the things we can start to do is start to say, as I'm trying to figure out what's going on, the first thing I need to do is ask the person to do the thing. And the reason I say that is oftentimes we're quick to say, oh, you, I'm not, you have a problem with the thing. Let's do a bunch of correlates for the thing. And correlates for the thing are always good. They all do work, but they we tend to end up not, mm, those end up having sort of limited utility in our world, right? So a lot of what's happened is that people have grabbed a bunch of great rehab exercises or workarounds that keep people loaded, that at, train some aspect of the system, that highlight or remove some complexity, like squatting on a slant board, it's a great example. Great, great tool. Why? Torso is upright. We can engage that full knee flexion. You can close down. Like that's a great movement. What is the world record for squatting on a slant board? Oh, you don't know because it's impossible to do and you'll die as soon as you do it. So what we see is that eventually I can't power clean on a slant board, can't jump as high on a slant board. Like that slant board suddenly stops becoming part of the conversation. The problem is, of course, hang on, everyone. Don't be sensitive. <clears throat> that's a great tool. I'm all about tools to solve problems. So, hey, I see that your ankles are the biggest range of motion factor to your squatting. We're going to squat today. What tools do I have available to maintain the stimulus? But ultimately, if I need to squat, I'm never going to not come back to doing the squat if that's what it is. And so one of the things we can do is to make sure, hey, do we, do we understand what we're seeing when someone is moving? And the easiest thing to do is to say, well, show me that you can move through this range under control and that you can arrive in a good position and pause in that good position and take some breaths in that position. And that turns out to be simple things like, Hey, that's a tempo air squat with an isometric pause at the bottom. And then if I see that you can't do that, the first order of business is to say, well, I see that you don't know how to do this. Let me see if I can coach you into these positions. So our default always is it's a movement learning problem first. Can this person be coached into a better position before we pull out all the FMS tools, all the ready state tools, all the voodoo bands and stop. 
Why is your foot doing that? Why are your foot pointing, feet pointing different directions? Why are you initiating with a huge pelvic dump? Why are your, you know, what, let's get you into a position so you can feel what's going on. And lo and behold, oftentimes that addresses a lot of technique. And that's why coaches lead with technique first. But what we found, because we ran this experiment for a long time, was that a lot of people couldn't get to the bottom of a movement restriction or inability to achieve a position or shape with more movement. And so suddenly we suddenly remember we have two tools at our disposal to restore this. I have skill transfer exercises, which are what corrective exercises are. If I'm trying to get better at snatching, I might do something like a heaving snatch balance or a pressing snatch balance or a snatch balance. Those are skill transfer exercises and they're no different than any of the other accessory work that we might do. And then I have what I call position transfer exercises, which are mobilizations, which are some technique or tool to target some aspect of the movement system. That may be soft tissue, that may be going after the joint, that may be looking upstream and downstream of a, of a specific problem and asking what's going on there. But then we start to build a problem list and we just start crossing off the problem list. Oftentimes, weakness is not actually on the problem list, that people cannot get into a good shape and so their bodies don't give them access to that shape. So we can start to use that model that we just talked about of saying, hey, what do I think the problem is? Well, let me get you into the best shape available to you today. Let's work there. Then let's ask, how do we continue to restore or improve that shape? What tools are available to me? Skill transfer exercises, accessory work, cool, right? Corrective exercises, some mobilizations, boom. But we're always talking about the thing. And the thing is, whatever the formal movement language of strength and conditioning that we're engaged in. And there's a reason why squatting and hinging and pressing and, and deadlifting and in all the shapes that the shoulder goes into, you can see that there is a root common language across all sports of movement positions. It's just not that complicated. The internet has come to us, made us believe that we have to have 17,000 ways to rotate and, and we don't need that stuff. The goal was to give you access to your shapes so that you could go out and do a sport, not so that you could make the whole gym be your whole life. So if we could trace back the, the breadcrumb trail of where some people might've got lost along the way, go, let's go all the way back to Supple Leopard. Um, and just a side story that you'll appreciate with Supple Leopard, going back now, probably a dozen years ago when I'm working with the Giants, we had a backup quarterback, I'll leave him unnamed, but he came to me because he saw some of the work I was doing and he said, do you know about this Supple Leopard thing? I'm like, sure, I've read the, read the book. He's like, can we do some of that stuff together? And every time I showed up, he would sprint in the door. He's like, can we do supple leopard stuff today? And so I had to become very well-versed to keep this guy entertained every, and I'm like, how much better do you really want to move? Like you're moving as well, like a ninja, like he's like, he, but he couldn't get enough of it, but he absolutely loved it. So I thought you'd appreciate that. I um, love it. But, uh, but and let me that stop there. And, and because what's amazing about that conversation is that suddenly we have opened up a tool set that was traditionally the domain of movement experts, really a few of movement experts like Gray or Lee or physios who are doing manual work. And we gave it to the athlete to say, you should own your position because that's really the conversation that doesn't get help. Who owns their shapes? And we, as you know, working in the NFL, strength staff does not have all the time they wish they had with the players. We have really limited amount of time with the players. And our goal in that time is not necessarily to go back to the drawing board and solve all these problems, but to continue to manage our available range while getting you stronger, more durable, the physios and, and rehab staff, their job is to get you back playing again. And what we see in the middle is that the, if the 
players don't come to own their own experience and process and know that they're limiting, we're putting a huge, huge domain sort of burden on the strength coach. And that's what's subversive about supple leopards. We're saying, hey, let's make this in the language of strength and conditioning so that the only safe place and the only real place where we can understand what's going on with inputs and outputs is the weight room. Now the players has a language. They can start to restore their minimums. The coaches can keep an eye on that because again, better positions, better output Then the physios and the performance staff can do their job because we have athletes who are better able to access their native range. Well, I think what it allowed us to do is, and what I would explain to people is that I managed the gray area, that I would have yes. a lot of players that said, yes. I'm not really hurt enough and I don't want to go in that training room because that's because then I'm labeled as injured, but I don't know if I'm really ready to do what the strength coach is asking me to do. I'm kind of in no man's land. And I, I and part of what I said is I managed that gray area to get you healthy that. enough to not only get go in that training room, but hopefully get back into the general population for lack of a better term that you can actually do the, the standard program you're being asked to do. But I think with some of the misconceptions and in, in, uh, that have come out of that, like it, it, we saw this huge escalating focus on self-mobilization, soft tissue work. And it went from just, Hey, I'm going to foam roll to where everything got more aggressive and got spikes and heat and cold and, and got really masochistic. And so um, they got to the point, as you said, they need to almost needed that to survive from workout to workout. So if you look back, where do you see where things got misinterpreted from that initial message of what you said, I just need to get you into these positions? Well, I think like everything else, it's a, you know, we see that a new set of tools comes in and people need to figure out how to integrate them into their own world. So, you know, the first, I don't know, 300 pages of Supple Leopard is like how to apply the principles of human physiology to classic weightlifting principles. So it's always about lifting and moving first. And then the back third of the book is skill, like position transfer exercises. And I think people forgot that the thing I cared about the most was the hot, dirty, nasty performance. I mean, that was the thing that people were paying me for to come in and help them, you know, not give them complex, seemingly very specialized mobility routines so that they could do more busy work. It was like, what is the minimum effective dose so that we can get you to do the things that your coach is requiring you to do or your sports requiring you to do or get you out of pain so that you can go do your job. And I think, you know, we saw that people would be like, ah, you know, I'm spending an hour doing, I was like, hold up. You, this is, this is crazy. What I'm advocating for is some soft tissue work at home in the evening and maybe one or two quick mobilizations in between sets so that you can better access your positions and shapes. And I think it took everyone a while to just understand. And I think this, again, a feature of the internet, a feature of the system for people to understand what was important, right? And and what is the minimum dose here to see change? And we we tried, I tried the best I could. I'm sure I failed on a thousand fronts, right? I mean, Supple Leopard came out and I just got attacked by the physical therapist for saying I didn't understand pain theory. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, you know, I went to the same schools you went to, I, you know, do the same things. But at some point, the real message here was who owns this? And what are the tools available to this person in a safe way where they can return their, their shoulders to full range? Why doesn't your hip rotate? I don't know. Let's become curious about that. But it, we hadn't made this part of the diagnostic language. What we had was, I'm injured. Now I'm just suffering through my workouts, managing my own pain until I you know, either have so much pain I can't do my job or I get injured and I go back into the cycle. So I think it, it just needed a, se a second to sort out 
And I think we were far in front of a lot of people because people weren't front squatting. They weren't back squatting. They weren't deadlifting. They were doing a lot of exercise like bodybuilding things. And that's further confusion to the, to the message, right? Because if you're doing cable crossovers, really how much range of motion do you need? Who gives a crap? It does, you do look good naked on the internet. Fine. So let's fast forward now to the latest book built to move where you mm. and Juliet really just crushed it. And it's it, for those who have not gotten a chance to check it out. It's a really simple and elegant. Seriously, blueprint check it out for it, it's basically the blueprint for becoming robust and resilient. And um, talk about some of the integrated balance of some of the elements of what you call the vital signs, mm. uh, breathing, sleep, environment, walking, and how they impact movement and mobility. This book comes out of sort of, you know, a few decades of working in high performance and realizing we always used to take high performance and treat it like a laboratory because I, I'm like, I see a lot of people on the internet who don't show their work. You, you don't have, you can just drop poop bombs, say you're the best. And I'm like, great. Who are you working with? Can I see your results? And can I see what your work looks like? What does a session look like? I don't even know. You're, you're not even showing us. You're just, you know, you're telling me of your, your primacy and your supremacy, but you're not actually being, being sort of, you know, transparent about your models and methods. So we've been trying to take high performance and seeing if we can transmute those lessons into the lessons for our lives, for our, our us who aren't mutants, right? I'm just like a middle-aged dad who likes to mountain bike. And I'm trying to say, hey, the reason high performance matters so much is, um, I can quote one of my favorite coaches, Franz Bosch. He says, there's more variation in waltzing, excuse me, more variation in waltzing than there is in sprinting, which means that low load, low speed, it really doesn't matter what you do. Your body can get away with anything. And I think that's the, one of the confusing things that people, well, I've always done it this way. I'm like, well, your job wasn't on the line. You weren't sprinting maximally. It wasn't under a huge load. You didn't have to express, throw a shot put or a discus or sprint or go over a hurdle. So it didn't matter. And what we've done learned is that if we look at the lessons of how to make the best men and women in the world compete, recover, adapt, win world championships, we should be able to take those lessons and go backwards. Sort of Formula One concept, like the the breaks, any lock breaks that we all enjoy today, Formula One concept. So this book then is the distillation of essential principles. As something I heard Eric Cressy say once, small hinges open big doors. These are our small hinges in terms of day-to-day -day behaviors that we start with in terms of lifestyle, basic behaviors for all of our elite performance. So if you are working with me, I'm going to ask you about all of the things in this book. And you can almost divide the book into sort of two categories. The first set of categories are basic behaviors that we've found if you want to have healthy tissues and express power and have joints and, and tissues in a brain that will do it, you should do be doing these things or an approximation of these things. It's nice that in this book, we have all of these as sub, uh, not subjective, but objective measures. We've got actually good data to support all of the recommendations, good research to back up what we're doing. And this allows us to have sort of minimums. So now we can start to say, well, hey, I, I see that you're always suffering with these chronic you know, tweaks and stuff. Let's look at your sleep. Let's look at your, your nutrition. Let's look at how well you're de decongesting the tissues. The other half of the book is really about range of motion minimums for the average person. So there we've disguised some tests that look like things that anyone who's familiar with FMS or the, you know, the ready state ass assessment, you'll be like, oh, I understand. You're actually touching 
all of the positions. We have something for the shoulder. We have uh, overhead. We have something for the shoulder behind. We have something for the shoulder on the front. You know, the hip is, we're assessing the hip in full flexion. We're assessing the hip in extension. So we've got some movement minimums here. And what you should be looking at is that this book ends up being a really great prequel to all the other work because it tells us what to do. And more importantly, when we're going to fit this into our busy schedules. But more importantly, what we really tried to do and listen up coaches was help you solve this huge problem that you have as a coach, which is I have an hour to get some work done with you as an athlete. Do I want to use that time to lecture you about walking and sleep? Well, those are important. And if you're going to show up and get the most out of my workout, I need you to do these things. But here in the gym, we're here to train. We're here to become skilled. We're here to work on our positions and shapes. Let me have you read this book and you'll find out that you can actually go faster and handle these loads and be more effective. So it's almost like we tried to create a, a simple template so that coaches could say, hey, I need you to read this so you can get the most out of our training. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So picking up where you left off there, this is kind of a, a diverse and holistic approach that it requires a skill set of what you call a, a term that I've stolen from you is, is a savage generalist. All right. So <laughs> Love it. Yes. Um, in, in the current environment of hyper-specialization mm -hmm. where um, how do you recommend a coach or therapist, you know, best prepares himself to be a quality purveyor, of such a broad range of information. Yeah. And the, it's really a great question because at the very idea of, I think the coach is the most powerful person in health today. They're the most powerful person to have the biggest change on families and communities and over a lifetime because that coach has three to five contact hours, potentially a week with you. And more importantly, that coach has a context in which to discuss a whole variety, like a sort of constellation of behaviors. I don't think math is a universal language. I don't think physics is a universal language. I don't think art is or music. I think it's training. When I've taught on every continent except Antarctica, and everyone knows what a deadlift is, and everyone knows what a push-up is, and everyone knows that they need to eat a certain way to play soccer the best. And literally, if I go to any planet and I say, do you train? Yes, we can begin a conversation and a really nuanced conversation about how they're solving the same sets of problems I'm solving. What supplements do they take? What eating? What, oh, you do sauna. You, like, you, you can just suddenly see that we have this universality around this experience. But for the, uh, a coach working with an athlete, suddenly we have context to talk about nutrition and recovery and downregulation. And we have a safe place to talk about pain and who owns that. And is that a serious problem? That coach can be the person who refers out to doctors or third party, you know, help to bring another teammate on to help solve an improved performance or, or, you know, brain stuff suddenly, Hey, you're post-concussive, you know, let's make sure you got the resources, or this is a high performance psychology sort of issue. So what you're going to realize is that showing up day one as a new coach, you're already more prepared than anyone on this call was 10, 15 years ago. Because our new coaches coming through are much more sophisticated and have a ton of tools. 
comma, you're probably going to be refining your work the rest of your life. You're going to become an, a mini expert in sleep. You're going to become a mini expert in sports nutrition. You're going to become a mini expert in pain. And I need you to develop all those tools if you're going to call yourself a coach. Because what we said was, we'll use this as an example. We, use, we used to tell people pain is a medical problem. And as a coach or a trainer, you don't have any agency or control to talk to someone about their pain. So what do you do? You're like, well, let's train around it and ignore it. And meanwhile, that person's going home, taking the bourbon, taking the THC, taking the ibuprofen, taking the Oxycontin, right? They're doing anything to make themselves feel better, except all the low hanging fruit, sort of easy, easy tools and tactics to help resolve this problem. And again, that problem may be a result of stress, hydration, poor nutrition, you know, static, you know, sedentary behaviors, plus crap movement, plus, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to empower that basic coach, that you know, that first contact coach and say, here's a basic tool set to make sure that we're covering the basis. And most coaches are getting that generalist education, but then you're going to have to continue to become interested in what do I think is the limiting feature for this person in front of me right now? Is it that they just need someone to say, hey, I think you can do this. Don't be afraid. Hey, it's okay that you're a little sore after this run. Hey, your nutrition is terrible. You haven't eaten a fruit or a vegetable or eaten any protein today. Let's start there. So ultimately, we're going to have to give the, the tools to the coach and that coach can then layer it into whatever it is they're coaching. Pilates, yoga, powerlifting, Olympic lifting, whatever. I love it. And, and in the utopia, I love the glor the, the, um, you know, rightfully glorified coach as being the, the, the big conduit for the future of health. The problem is, is not, not all of them have that skill set. And so right. now, now let's go to the end user who now they have to distinguish between all of them. I, I have yeah, this conversation tricky, with my, well, I have this conversation with my son who just graduated with an accounting degree. And I said that the one advantage that you have is you don't have to compete against accounting enthusiasts online, <laughs> right? Dilettantes. Is that is that, you know, you're going to compete against other accountants. I have to compete against idiot mountain men with their shirt off to who take steroids and eat organ meats in the middle of the woods. Like, so how do we you, have, let me just say, let me stop you right there and say, you can't compete against those people. That's the problem. Right. And, and one of the things that I think is useful is a framework. Cause I completely understand what you're saying and feel this feel insane. Sometimes, you know, I'm like, Hey, once again, I'm like, who are you working with again? Can I see your gold medals? I'm like, I don't want to be like, bring my big dick energy in here. But on the other hand, I'm like, I just need to see some inputs and outputs. And you're a 23 year old with abs. And I don't know, you know, and all you're, you're working out in a big gym and you don't own a facility and you've never coached an injured person. You've never prepared someone for a sport. And what ends up happening then is we can almost start to separate out some of the bodybuilding physical culture as entertainment. Like that, that's great. That's no different than playing art or music. That's no different than, you know, you know, playing pickup softball that let's, let's view it as a sport almost. And then on the other side, we should really start to say, what does sports preparation look like and sports training look like? And that's one of the, I think is a useful tactic for me is I'm like, Hey, this is great. I love that you're doing some loading you're breathing hard, you're hanging out with your bros and your sisters and you feel good. That is not the same thing as preparing a team to go fight or preparing war fighters to go knock down doors or getting someone to the Olympics. These are different conversations. And so you're absolutely right. When we start to help people understand that this is entertainment, right? Then I think it gets more useful, but man, it, it is, I think we're at peak bullshit right now. I, I thought we were peak bullshit 10 years ago. We're not, it's really bullshit now. 
And Instagram is a dumpster fire. Someone recently was like, Hey, look at this person. Do you follow them? And I was like, no, I don't, I don't follow them. And they're like, they have 2 million followers on Instagram, 13 million followers on YouTube. And I was, I went to their side. I was like, Oh, this is great bodybuilding. That guy has his shirt off. He's doing bodybuilding exercise every time. That's super cool. I understand why people love that. That is not even in the same skill set universe of the things that the conversations I'm having. So, you know, ultimately I think it helps for people to understand a little bit and we're going to have to continue to educate. Hey, if you want to go do a sport or something, we should train for that in a reasonable way. And I think one of the problems there is that we took the gym and we forgot why we were training in the gym. We were always training for something. You know, one of my critiques of CrossFit legitimately, and I love CrossFit, I think CrossFit can be dialed up and dialed down to meet a whole lot of needs for a whole lot of people. But, you know, the goal of CrossFit initially was to help people protect their energy reserves, to give them some exposure to, to their blind spots. But now we see people are spending two or three hours a day in the gym to be elite CrossFitters. How would you also go do a sport on top of that? You can't. And so suddenly you're like, okay, a lot of the decisions you're making in your fitness journey, your entertainment fitness journey, doesn't scale to preparing someone to play major league soccer. What are you going to pull out? And suddenly you're like, oh, okay, I'm back at something that looks a little bit more classic strength and conditioning. So we can make peace with, hey, that this is what we have to deal with in our industry. Who I feel bad for is the one who gets lost in the crossfire yeah. is the, the 40, 50 something year old who's got a bum shoulder. And how do they distinguish between I'm going to, I'm going to go for physical therapy, which is this very wide ranging blanket <laughs> right. term. And I have no idea like, what it I, is. And, and am I going to get, you know, the same treatment that I would have gotten in 1985 that it's going to give me, you know, yeah. heat, ultrasound, stim and free cookie recipes, or am I going to find someone that can change my life? Right. And so how do we empower those people, how to make better choices that it's not all the same thing? Well, one of the things I think is useful, it's uh, you, what a great question. And when you solve that, please just text me directly what the solution is. <laughs> um, I'm on it. Let, let's go with when I get injured or have a problem, this system is set up for me to go see my primary care physician, who's a generalist who refers me to a physical therapist, right? And there's no conversation about my lifestyle. No one knows what's going on. No one's watching me move. And I'm just like plucking out of the hat. Like it's totally a blind process. Maybe I get a physical therapist who loves to weight lift. Maybe I'm really lucky. You know, my insurance is going to cover three of these visits. Well, apparently it's a three visit problem because my insurance covers this for three visits. So I asked people, I'm like, well, is that what you do with your dentist? Do you just close your eyes and pick the dentist? Or did you call around? Did you ask around? Did you read Yelp reviews? Who's your dentist? Well, my, my friend told me to see this dentist. I'm like, okay, now we're having a better conversation. So we in physical therapy, even that world, we can almost divide it into, hey, do I have a performance need? And I'm not talking about sports physical therapy, which is managing someone who got injured in a sport. That's what I'm talking about. Those performance physical therapists tend to be working in environments where they actually see people and the whole goal is performance and the goal is wattage and power. And I'll tell people who are seeing physical therapists for a, for a performance problem, that person is likely also a coach or should be trained as a coach. And you, when you see them in the gym, they, you can't tell if they're a physio or a coach. And then I say, well, how do you find that? Well, I'm like, you call your local gym or your local training center or your local CrossFit and say, who are you using? Which one of your physio coaches is there? And that way we can start to, A, 
have a much stronger referral network, but we need to definitely continue to remind people who's the population. If you are have shoulder pain benching and you play football and I go in and I'm working with a, a person who doesn't bench, a person who's probably going to tell me not to lift weights, a person who specializes in geriatric care, that's just a mismatch. And the whole system is set up to on that blind side where the incentive is not to improve your performance or return to play or doing those things. It's to get you out of pain in the least visits possible and get you independent. So again, it's almost like the physical therapist medical profession has been set up to not be stakeholders in your success, which means that your insurance may be you know, good for catastrophe, but not for performance. And we might have to have a separate universe for that. We're trying. Yeah, I'm trying. I love I, dude, fact. I'm trying. I, I, I literally love... took my physical therapy office and I put it in the gym and I got my, my <laughs> treatment table as close to the squat rack as I could. I look, I, I'm just, I'm just going on that last sentence was, you know, physical therapy, you know, performance versus catastrophe. Cause you're right. It's exactly set up for that. If something really, really bad happens, you know, you're probably going to be okay. But if you're trying to get your right shoulder out of pain, <laughs> good luck. So, but it is what it is. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna kind of uh, as we sort of get towards the end of this, um, I want to talk about sort of the trends. Wait, wait, wait! wait. We're, we're just getting started. We're, of... we're finally we're just finally getting like into the meat. I mean, this is, these are these are the They're most the important potatoes. conversation that we could possibly have. I just want everyone to hear this. This is this that we're not talking about how many sets and reps and which exercise is best. We're talking about the problem between. Let me give you an example of how important this conversation is. There's a my daughters both play water polo. I have a young kid who's now going to be a sophomore. She's a goalie. There's a senior water polo player. She's playing 18U. They've sucked her up into the working with the big kids because she's a good, good, good player. And there was a senior who suffered a knee injury skateboarding and a pretty bad knee injury. And this, this kid had insufficient rehab, has now pain when she plays, can't handle the volume of that stress. Now suddenly maybe isn't going to play water polo. You can see that when someone has a problem, when they get an incomplete response, it can fundamentally alter someone's life. This woman now doesn't play with her team. She doesn't hang out with her friends. Her identity has changed, right? The things that she does for leisure activity start to change. That is an express failed physical therapy outcome. And I think we should be outraged that this young woman has been failed by the experience that she said, I have an injury to my knee. I, I submit myself to this process and this process leaves me more deconditioned, less answers, less work hardened, less strong than when I went into that process. And now I can't return to my play. That is a red flag nightmare disaster that's repeated itself thousands and thousands of times every day. Yeah, well, while we're on the soapbox, I'm diving in. So I always talk about when we teach our workshops is like, the, I hope to catch people at the beginning of the fork, that fork in the road. And and because I tell this, this impactful story that I had where I was working with a guy, we were doing some stuff for utility workers, uh, not far uh, from you in Southern California. And a guy came up to this to, to the guy I was working with and he, he said hello to him and he said, you probably don't recognize me. I lost a hundred pounds. Holy and shit. he said, wow. He said, well, what happened? He said, well, you know, it's not that I didn't want to work out. It's just that it freaking hurt. And I'd try it and I tried it. I thought it was willpower, but I just kept getting hurt and it sucked. So I'd stop. And then 
you know, then what happened was you came in, you gave it these exercises that was mandatory for the guys to do before they went out on the road. And when, and then when they got to the job site, they had to do them again. He goes, I started doing them. And you know what? My, my knees, my hips started to feel a little better. Started going for walks, started going for walks. And then the walks got a little more aggressive. And then I got into hiking and he said, you know, I don't want to come home and eat crap. So I started eating a little better. And now they started pulling yeah. me down off my medications and all these things. Here you go. Fast forward a year and I'm down a hundred pounds. Now, if you look at what could have happened, if he continued down that other path, that we didn't catch him before the fork is, you know, he goes to the doctor, says his knee or hip hurts. He's got what? Three options. He's going to refer you to PT. He, let's say he goes to the typical, you know, shake and bake where he's doing clamshells and terminal knee extensions and it doesn't get any better. Now mm -hmm. he comes back. He's, he's the quote unquote failed physical therapy patient. Now he's got surgery or he's got med medication. We know the stats on surgery are not great. And so now he's going to get on meds and, you know, is he going to want to wake up and eat a kale salad? Is he going to want to jump up and go to work that day? Like it, it fundamentally changed his life in more ways than others. And we talk about this on a global level. There's thousands and not millions of stories like that of, of us being able to catch them before the fork, before they've fallen off that cliff. Word. That is, that is, that is what we should be fighting for. I think we can use strength and conditioning again, not fitness entertainment, but strength and conditioning to transform people's lives because we know how to regress and progress. And we know what the constellation of behaviors are around supporting a person who wants to work harder. And that work harder may be my job on the front of the computer. That may be, I want to return home at the end of the day with more energy for my family. It may be, I want to win a world championship, but the tools around care and feeding and the brain and the psychology are best managed in the context of giving someone a physical practice. That's why these conversations are so important because we've, I, let me just say it again. The coach is the person who's going to solve this problem in the future. Otherwise I don't see it being solved. Got a lot to think about. We got a lot to think mm -hmm. about. So, so, you know, We've been through these trends over the last several decades, right? Uh, when it comes to movement and corrective exercise and this and that. And, um, you know, with these trends, it, it got pretty confusing for a lot of people because mm -hmm. a lot of people went down this corrective exercise hole where all they did was these corrective exercises. And look, you know, I was one of the guys that was a corrective exercise guy, especially once I realized that I was misapplying things and not actually attacking it the right way. But, um, now we're starting to see people move towards these, uh, you know, focusing on, again, the global movement patterns and trying to make sure that we can sort of nail down those big rocks. So how do we balance sort of both? Because there are some people that just need to do the big things well, right? They need to just be taught how to squat well and, and lunge well and, and be on one leg well, right? Maybe they have the capacity to do it, but the inability comes with their their technique. They just can't do it. And then we have people that literally can't get in positions and shapes and posture due to basic limitations. So where do we meet in the middle? What's the sweet spot? You know, what is it if we, if you strip out all of the strategies and styles, and I, I really want to just give gravity and double click on what you said there. You know, I work in Europe a lot and I saw go to conventions and I would see everyone who was really good at corrective exercise just loved it because it, it feels important. It feels like I'm doing work. It's really difficult. I can be mindful and go slow. And as soon as I said, Hey, we're going to do a camp and I'm going to expose you to real load and real fatigue and real cardiorespiratory demand and real metabolic demand and real task demand. 
we saw that those people fell apart, <laughs> you know? So you're like, okay, so again, what is my objective measure here? My objective measure is that whatever I do should be, make me a better runner. Okay. Running is the thing. All we're trying to train is keeping an eye on your movement minimums and helping you support your run train volume. If I'm doing a bunch of things and it doesn't make me a better runner, what I should be thinking to myself is what am I doing? <laughs> what is this about? So if we pan back for a second and say, well, fundamentally, what are the essential positions for the shoulder? Let's just start there, for example, right? The shoulder blows people's minds. And yet, let me just tell everyone, it's not that complicated. Your shoulder does a few things. And just bear with me. It goes over your head. It goes out to your side. It goes in front of you. And wait for it. It goes behind you. It rotates, right? I can create rotation in, the, in those positions. And I can do it with my elbow straight or my elbow bent. So I put my arms up, I can rotate, but I can also have my elbow bent and I can rotate and I still have my arm up. That's it. So suddenly when you start to look at those four shapes, you see that every training tool falls into one of those four shapes for the shoulder. And, you know, maybe I'm pressing, which is going from more of a front rack position, which is my arm bent, but out in front of me or in the plane of scaption to overhead, or I'm snatching which means I'm going out from my arm side by my side with the elbow bent to overhead. Again, if I, all I said was, what are the fundamental positions? What I can do is go into your program and say, well, I see that you didn't take your shoulder into any internal rotation. No wonder you're not doing any snatch pulls. You're not doing any Cuban rotations. You're not doing, all you're doing is sleeper stretching. I don't see that you deadlift. I don't see that you hang clean. I don't see that you swing a kettlebell. Your arm is never in this position ever. So, what did you expect was going to happen when you weren't competent with the rotational capacity of your arm out by your side? And so suddenly we can start to say, well, hey, I see that you never put your arms over your head. When I see those lists of exercises, essentials, hinge, push, pull, da, 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 I'm like, push, pull in what position? And that's what's missing from that, that fundamental language. If I put your arms over your head, ultimately you and I can argue about the best way of training the arm over the head. Is it downward dog? Is it hanging from a pull-up bar? Is it handstand push-ups? Is it snatching? Is it jerking? Is it with dumbbells? Is it with kettlebells? Is right. You suddenly realize that, Hey, there's so many ways where we can train this arm overhead position. But the main thing is, Hey, are you actually putting your head in that on your arm in that overhead position? And so if we're going to suddenly ask, what are the big blocks? Let's make sure at least people have one exercise in every eight to 10 days where they're at least exposing themselves to some of these fundamental shapes. And suddenly maybe you were like, oh, the burpee is the only time someone puts their hand behind their back, right? Their arm behind their back, with the elbow bent. That's chaturanga. That's the bottom position of a push-up. That's the finished position for a row. That's a dip, right? All those shapes. But if you're not in that position, you're going to suck in that position and your shoulder won't function the way it needs to function. Your shoulder has to have access to all of these shapes. And so if you're missing one of these key positional shapes, because it's not in your program, then I'm going to have to prioritize some accessory work, or I'm going to have to do some corrective exercises to touch those shapes. So if we suddenly have this language of shapes and positions, which again, not that complicated, right? How do you want to get there? You want to do it on the rowing machine? You want to do it in a push-up? You want to do it in a dip? You want to do it with a bent over row? You want to do a single row? I don't care how you do it, but you've got to get you back in this position. And it's probably useful if we push from that position and approximate the tissues. And it's also if we distract the tissues, we're pulling on that, right? Like doing a pull-up versus pressing. Those are the same shapes, but how I do that and how the tissues are different. But then I can load that 
and challenge your ability to maintain that shape with a whole host of tools. So if you come to me and your squatting is terrible, we're not going to not squat. We're going to get you squatting in the ranges that you can control currently. And then I'm going to challenge your squat by either handing you something that's heavy, by making you go fast, by making you breathe hard, by making you switch tactics and tools or going from block practice to random practice. I might put a clock on it. I might add metabolic demand. But ultimately, in that language of using these tools to fundamentally transfer your position, I have written every program on the planet. Then we can say, well, what happens with the hip? Same thing. What happens with the spine? Am I exposing the spine to its fundamental language behaviors? Then we now suddenly can start to strip down what's essential and we can start to see what's busy work, what's maybe not is acting like a less effective use of our time to train these fundamental shapes. Love it. And so Mike and I teach a course on program design and, and we never really show except for one specific sub course, which is smaller course we have on exercise. We never show you an exercise and yet we're teaching you how to program. <laughs> this is it. We, because yes. we basically give you just checklists, checklists of, of things you, you need to get to. And I think so that checklist, as you said, needs to be expanded behind, beyond the, what fits on the t-shirt of squat, lunge, push, pull, hinge. <laughs> and it, it needs to be a little bit more than that. And even to the to the grander side of where this whole ties whole thing ties in and, and the message that I think you're getting across in Built to Move, or I just finished Peter Atia's Outlive and like just getting the message that we need to really get people to understand what good GPP, like what good general physical preparedness is and what boxes do you need to check to say, you know, and this is where it solves the 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 problem of, you know, Mike and I 20 years ago being corrective exercise geeks, because it's like, well, that's great, but you're checking one little box that you can't, you know, you haven't addressed strength. You haven't addressed, you know, your, your aerobic, you know, conditioning. You haven't yes. addressed your, your top end capacity and VO2 max. You haven't, there's so many things you've missed because you're so you've, you've dropped down into that silo so far that you can't see all the other things around you. I, I really agree with that. Um, you know, when suddenly you realize, wow, there is a lot of complexity in program design you know, in terms of volume, trying to understand ready state of the athlete to come in for that speed work. I mean, remember, I, I love going on the internet and really trying to understand what's going on, but my root language is position. Oh, that's a clever way of challenging these positions and these things stack together. So overhead squatting is full shoulder flexion and then a good upright torso squat position. That's why that's so difficult because people cannot either put their arms over their head or they can't squat. And so, right. I mean, so you can squat looking at the ground, bent over into a hinge position, but that's deadlifting. That's not a full squat. So suddenly what you realize is we're going to have to pull apart those things. And what we don't really give people is a good diagnostic tool to understand that. What I would suggest is there are so many ways to prepare athletes for sport. And again, I have the benefit of working with a whole bunch of different teams across a whole bunch of different platforms. And I'll tell you that the Eagles do it differently than the Niners. And yet they're both pretty good football teams, right? And so what we end up seeing is native to that style of training, to what people emphasize, we should be able to run a third-party validation test about access to positions. And if your programming is good, you will be able to drop into a new sport 
a new skill, a new tactic, a new assessment and thrive because the assessment should be looking at the quality of your positions and how well that trains you to manage that. Or, Hey, if my athletes are in the middle of a world cup season for the mountain biking race, my job is to do one thing right now is to keep them racing. And that's the only thing I care about. Can they go faster on the bike? The second the season's over, I'm like, okay, let's see the cost of maintaining these minimums. Let's see what we need to rebuild. Let's see what we need to reestablish. But what you're seeing is we haven't really given people third-party validation. If you're a good strength athlete, you should be able to go to a yoga class and kick butt. You're not going to be as flexible as a tiny person without lats and hamstrings. That's okay. You don't need to be. You're not going to be able to do all the binding. But if you can't put your arms over your head and you're going to yoga class and you fancy yourself an athlete, I'm like, there's something wrong with your programming. And suddenly you're like, oh, those Olympic lifters, those track and field athletes, they're pretty good athletes for some reason, which is why I keep saying that the best athlete is the person who can pick up the new skill the fastest. They can transfer their body positions and that organization of fitness into a new skill set or a new pro a movement problem. But you're absolutely right. We These third-party validations should be agnostic about the way we train. And because at the end of the day, really, I, I, I don't know if I don't want to speak for you, but I know for us, when we're teaching, I don't really give a shit what you do to improve that squat. <laughs> you know, isn't right? that true? It's I, totally true. I, I have no vested interest in any exercise. I've seen enough over the last 25 years that I don't really care what we do, as long as you can check these boxes at the end of the day. And so now transferring that to coaches, uh, one of the things that we mentioned you know, in our course is that I came up with this title. Uh, I'm curious to get your feedback on it. The czar of exercise. Like if, if I became appointed that czar of exercise, what I'm going to do is just go from training facility to training facility. I'm just going to walk in and I have one question. Why are you doing that? That's and right. if you can't give me a really good answer, that's based on some sort of foundation of some sort of assessment or test that you did. And then you have some marker that you're looking to hit, then it's, as you said, it's just entertainment, right? So if we don't have that scoreboard to go by, we're all playing a game that we don't have rules and don't have a scoreboard for. Yeah. You know, and if you went, dropped into something like F45, for example, I'm like, this is a great place to get some good conditioning in here. Right. And what they've done is constrain the environment by theoretically asking that person to do a greater diversity of movement skills in their 45 minute workout. So theoretically I'm exposing you to a bunch of things, but it's difficult to see progression. It's difficult to see, you know, these qualities that you're talking about get better. Why are we, why are you doing that? You know, um, Starting strength has a whole bunch of gyms that are starting to happen now. Just simple barbell gyms. Mark Ripito has taken his his you know show on the road. And what's so great is that Mark is just saying, "Hey, look, you're a 50 year old person who needs to be under some load, and the loading doesn't need to be dance exercises. It doesn't need to be entertainment. We need to deadlift and squat and bench." And do these simple movements that give us the biggest bang for the buck. You know why? Because you're not, you're 50 and no one cares if you're the best mountain biker in the neighborhood. You need to get your skeleton under load. So suddenly you can take that programming and say, what problem are you trying to solve? I'm trying to give people better bone density, better ligamentous and tendon health, put some muscle mass on them. Sweet. That is not the same thing necessarily. I might be able to repurpose that for a whole host of other athletes, but more importantly, we're not asking, what is this person training for? Is it general health in life? Good. Did you did you become more metabolically efficient today? Check. Did you put your arms over your head? Yeah, it doesn't take very much. It's when I ask people a lot, you know, tell me about your training. Well, I lift weights. I'm like, oh, I eat food. 
Is that very specific? I mean, that's what I just said. We didn't even tell me what kind of food I ate. I, I, I specialize in pizza and beer. You know, that's a very specific, you know, kind of food. When you say you lift weights, that's what you're saying. You lift, you like, oh, you do, you know, five pound pink dumbbell curls when there's a squat right next to you. You know, I was just in a huge, uh, the Bay Club here. Uh, we, we were had killing some time in between a, a water polo game this weekend at the Junior Olympic qualifiers and our friend took us there. And they had five platforms that were empty. And I saw people just doing a bunch of work that I realized that we had really failed people because they were doing such small, weird isolation movements there was a sled to drag. There were tires to flip. There was, there was a real training environment there, but what people were doing was what they had been trained to do. And what you see there is exactly what you're saying is that we have not educated people on what are the essentials and ask the question, what are you training for? So one, one last thing I'll throw in just on a personal note, because I know you, you mentioned you're staring down the barrel of 50 uh, coming up this year. I hit it uh, last year. And the way I explain it to my younger athletes that I train is that they're like, do you still like work out like you used to? And I said, yeah, I said the, the things that changed really was I, I can't train as much. My volume has been down. I have to warm up a whole lot longer. Like my warm up started yesterday. Um, and <laughs> once and I'm warmed up, I can do anything. And then, and then the third thing is that if I walk in the house with abs tomorrow, no one gives a shit. Um, and so that's, the, that's the other big difference. I, I do. I do. You, you always send me those pictures. So I, I care. Yeah, appreciate you, Mike. So with that, Mike, Mike, anything you want to add in? Because I would keep Dr. Sturet all day. Yeah. You know, uh, at some point I would love to hear, uh, your thoughts on how LTAD and GPP can really create a better foundation of movement for, for everybody. And that's just something where my mind went, cause you were talking about building athleticism and for me working with youth athletes, long-term athletic development and yeah. uh, you know, the other stuff really sets that foundation even earlier down the road. And I don't want to open a can of worms, but I had to say it. Yeah. Um, and, and let me just, let me just say that that lifetime athletic development is such a long process. And if I might crib something again from our friend, uh, friends, Bosch, Strength conditioning is as much about coordination training and efficiency as it is about getting strong. And, you know, it's funny. I have this 15 year old, almost 15 year old daughter who can overhead squat and muscle snatch. And she does it with a bamboo shaky bar. Like we never test her one rep max. She, she trap bar deadlifts. She swings kettlebells. She's been doing this a long time and she moves. You can go onto her, your, you know, her Instagram page for a goalie, Caroline start goalie. And you'll see, you're like, holy shit, this little kid, has got some fundamentals down and it takes a long time. And what you're saying is what are the essential positions and essential skills that I can then continue to progress? The problem is we run into adults who don't have any foundation. No one ever pulled the wires to that copper filling. But if we had kids who can just handle a weight and I'm talking about like a sandbag and squat and press and move their bodies in these fundamental shapes, then we can really start to say, hey, we can start to add complexity to this in a long way. And I'll, I'll tell you, I hope we can have this conversation again about this development because where and when these things get done is a really is a, is a conundrum for a lot of people. And this is why we've got to empower kids to be able to do some simple movements in their home garage and train coaches and train parents to be able to see some of these things. Because sometimes my daughter's doing two days or she's got big, she's in high school and she's going to practice. And all we have is time for 20 minutes of working on a split squat 
or working on pressing overhead, or we do handstands in between front squats where we do five by three. And if we don't really start to make this part and parcel of, well, we eat at home, we sleep at home, we recover at home, we should also be able to teach these kids to move at home so that we can then progress them appropriately and not have to start from scratch or rebuild the house. Fabulous. Excellent. Excellent stuff. So um, as we're starting to get towards the end here, tell us about kind of what's, what's next. We got built to move now that's out there. Have you, have you already got your sights set on the, on the next project? Wow. You know, um, first of all, I think I want everyone to say and think critically and self-reflect that if we're the strength and conditioning experts, and theoretically, we're serving our communities and populations. We're trying to transform society through science. That's that's what this is. This is the science, objective measurement of human function. And we should, the highest calling of science is to transform the humanities. The highest calling of performance in sport, including strength and conditioning, is to transform our families and our cultures and our communities. That's our highest calling. So if this trillion dollar fitness experiment, which is almost a trillion dollars, if we're a fatter and have higher injury rates and or more obese and diabetic and depressed and and dealing with chronic conditions, then we have to ask as our third party validation, how well is our experiment running? And it's not running very well. So I don't know if in 10 years we'll be having the same conversation. We've really progressed a lot in 10 years. You all are so much, you were sophisticated 10 years ago, and now you're an order of magnitude more enlightened, sophisticated with the tools and friends and tactics that we have. I would like to say, hey, maybe maybe this new book, Built to Move, can help simplify for the non-athletic populations, our families, we can bring them along in our fitness journeys. Because we're those of us who are deep into strength, conditioning, and fitness, we call it now fit care, and we're getting better. We're literally leapfrogging away from everyone else, but we haven't invited everyone on this journey. How do I know? We'll just look at the numbers around our healthcare. The thing that I think I'm most obsessed about is this long-term athletic development and really asking how and who are the stakeholders in, in helping young kids come out of this system a little bit more intact, which means we need to do a better job of caring and feeding for the volunteer middle school coaches, the volunteer high school coaches. We have to do a better job of taking our principles and saying, can we wrap our arms around this community of psychology, of nutrition, of these things, and realize that sport is the one place where we can touch those things and really have granular, important conversations about our families. Well, speaking of mission and service, one of the big things that I'm incredibly impressed about what you and Juliet have done is this um, stand-up kids together. Um, uh, talk about uh, what that is and, and how, if people wanted to get involved with that, how we can do that. Stand-up kids was an initiative that uh, came out of a Google talk I did in 2010. I did, went to the campus and talked, it was called about being deskbound. And what we saw was that Google was spending a lot of money solving the health and fitness and, and robustness durability problems of their people who were their programmers. They were sedentary, depressed, not going out in sunlight, not walking, not those things. And one of the things we looked at is what's what's going on in the environment. And we saw that those people weren't moving enough during the day. They were saddled in a, a seated position that was having them adopt that position. They were adapting to the seat. Again, not making this about injury, but about loss of capacity. So that if you do a lot of sitting, probably gonna impact your pelvic floor capacity, probably gonna impact your ability to take a big breath, put your arms over your head or extend your hip. 
And what we started to realize is, okay, the truth is that we can help and work in high performance of sport and in high performance environments, we should be able to also apply those same principles to our kids. So we went into our kid's school and flipped our daughter's elementary school almost 11 years ago now, 12 years ago. And we ended up changing and converting the school to an all standing school where every kid has a desk that is individually heighted for them. They have a place to sit on the floor if they want, they can put their foot up. They're not little standing robots. But what we saw was that teachers were being more effective. Kids had a better experience. We saw that we were having fewer sort of behavioral problems, all the reasons that we're advocating for more movement. So what we went in there and, and we started converting schools to this more dynamic learning model where kids could sit on the ground, they could sit on a stool, they could, they could perch, they could fidget, they could, you know, and add in a workstation that was individually hired for them. And that really is the, the idea between what we're trying to do here is say, Hey, look, we've got to help people wrestle with this environment organism mismatch. We're not going to take away the screens. That, that's an impossible task. So, you know, if we're flooded by shit food, how are we going to think about controlling what we can control and shaping the environment in a way that respects and honors the person in that environment? And just by thinking about, hey, if this is what we're recommending here, why are we subjecting our kids here? If you wouldn't eat pizza every day for performance, why are we feeding pizza to our kids every day? Th those kind of fundamental type one error questions. That was the heart of what we were trying to do with stand-up kids. Awesome. Awesome. Absolutely tremendous. And want to thank you for, for that and all the work that you've done and, and, and can't thank you enough for your time uh, today in doing this. And this has been a tremendous conversation that could have went on forever and hopefully we'll get the chance to do it again. But want to thank you, Kelly, for joining us. Uh, Mike, thank you as always. And thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.